818-985-7735. Again, that's 818-985-KPFK. And choose option two for the pledge line. Or go to the website, kpfk.org. Support independent progressive KPFK now. Thanks again. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. The time now is 6 p.m. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, updates from Gaza. Big Cash rocks LA City Council race. Washington State snubs commission on boys and men. Wendy Williams documentary reignites conservatorship reforms. Political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal called to action. Bill Gates praises India's digital ID panopticon. Lord Jacob Rothschild is dead. Lessons learned from Julian Assange's extradition hearing. And the non-NATO news with Polina Vasiliev. All this and more coming up. Good evening. I'm West Siegmiller. The UN Humanitarian Agency, OSHA, says humanitarian organizations are being systemically denied access to North and South Gaza and that humanitarian aid convoys are coming under fire. Preventing aid to reach war areas constitute a war crime under the UN Charter. A senior UN aid official has said that one quarter of Gaza's population, estimated to be at about 600,000 people, is close to famine. The Palestinian death toll from Israeli bombardment has reached at least 30,000 by now, while over 70,000 Palestinians have been wounded, over 60% of them women and children. As a result of tremendous public pressure, the U.S. administration now finally appears ready to give the Netanyahu government an ultimatum. As Axios reported in an exclusive, the Biden administration gave Israel until mid-March to sign a letter provided by the U.S. today that gives assurances Israel will abide by international law while using U.S. weapons and allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. This late and possibly toothless ultimatum gives Israel free reign for the anticipated storm on Rafah, which is scheduled for March 10th, the beginning of the Holy Ramadan for Palestinians. Israel is keenly aware of its damaged reputation internationally given the immense civilian death toll and now the possibility of famine and mass starvation. Still, the Israeli finance minister announced the approval of a new illegal settlement south of Jerusalem despite widespread criticism. The move comes just days after U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that the U.S. considered Jewish settlement in the West Bank to be inconsistent with international law. Rebel Alliance News. <laughs> 
الطين معلش لو سالت دموع العين معلش تحت القصف واقفين معلش احنا اللي منتصرين معلش كله فدا فلسطين معلش لو سالت دموع العين معلش تحت القصف واقفين معلش احنا اللي منتصرين Buckle up, Los Angeles. With the city council races for 2024 heating up, we're witnessing a dazzling spectacle of cash fireworks, where over $4 million in shadowy funds from special interest groups are setting the political stage ablaze. This isn't just chump change. It's a meticulously orchestrated effort to sway the hearts and minds of voters in seven key races on the March 5th ballot. With the San Fernando Valley's districts 4 and 12 hogging a whopping 60% of the entire loot. In District 4, incumbent council member Nithya Rahman, once considered a darling of LA progressive politics, finds her campaign at the center of a financial whirlwind. Today, I have a question for Nithya Rahman. What do you think about the way LA is handling COVID? Initially, I thought we were doing great. We were early to shut down, and I think a lot of us felt really strongly about staying home to protect each other. But within a few weeks, I feel like all that changed. It was really confusing. I feel like we had a set of benchmarks in place for when we would reopen, and we would only reopen once we met those benchmarks. And then suddenly it felt like we reopened way too quickly. Restaurants were open, even indoor dining was open, bars were open. I think we could do better at making sure that we consult with people who are going to be the most affected by reopening based on science um, and waiting for the data to come in before we move to another stage of reopening. While independent expenditure groups have spent nearly $528,000 to campaign against ramen, other groups have spent over $325,000 to promote her candidacy, in stark contrast to the typical progressive stance against heavy special interest funding. Criticisms directed at Rahman have focused on her opposition to Los Angeles anti-homeless encampment law and her proposals to reduce police funding. Uh, I'm wondering if you support 4118 around schools and daycares. Well, I already voted against it, you know, <laughs> because it doesn't work. I mean, it's like, I don't think a kid's going to be safer because a tent is 500 feet away from a school, you know, it's Outside groups have also spent more than $579,000 to promote one of Rahman's challengers, Ethan Weaver. They include a group sponsored by the United Firefighters of Los Angeles City Union and the Political Action Committee for Thrive LA, a relatively new advocacy group. Weaver, in a statement, said, Our campaign is supported by firefighters, paramedics, police, 911 operators, and local businesses because they reject Councilmember Rahman's failed policies and support our vision for improving public safety and tackling the homelessness crisis. He also accused Rahman of being funded by, quote, many of the same out-of-town donors who bankrolled District Attorney George Gascon's campaign, end quote. Fernando Guerra, a political science professor and director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University, sees the level of activity by special interest groups as a counter-response to the Democratic Socialists of America, which since 2020 has gotten three of their candidates, council members Unices Hernandez and Hugo Soto Martinez, in addition to Rahman, elected to the L.A. City Council. Guerra said, quote, What happened was really the emergence of a progressive coalition that was 
able to get specific individuals elected. This, I think, has mobilized several groups to get more involved than they have before. It's really a counter-mobilization, end quote. District 12's race, involving incumbent John Lee, has also seen substantial independent expenditures exceeding $1 million. Despite facing allegations of ethics violations, Lee has received significant financial backing, which is typical for incumbent candidates with their hands still grasped on the levers of power. Lee is fighting allegations that he accepted gifts in excess of the gift limit for city officials while he was chief of staff to then-councilmember Mitch Englander and that he failed to report the gifts among other accusations. The alleged gifts were thousands of dollars incurred during an evening of poker in L.A.'s Koreatown plus a 2017 trip to Las Vegas, which included hotel amenities, gambling chips, and drinks. To be clear, the probable cause finding by Los Angeles Ethics Commission staff is not final. Whether Lee violated any rules will be determined at a future hearing of the Ethics Commission Board. Cal State Northridge political science professor Tom Hogan Esch said there comes a point when people's mailboxes become so inundated with campaign mailers that it's questionable how much information actually gets through to voters. He said, quote, after a certain point, the money doesn't have the impact that people think it will. It reaches a saturation point and voters just take the mailers and put them right in the trash, end quote. Still, that hasn't stopped special interest groups from pumping money into the races. The heavy investment by independent groups in these city council races, especially among Democratic politicians eager to brand themselves as grassroots candidates, underscores a tension between public stances on campaign financing and the practical realities of electoral politics in Los Angeles. As the elections approach, the future of Los Angeles hangs in the balance, and the stakes couldn't be higher. The influx of independent expenditures into Los Angeles City Council races may not always align with the candidates' stated values and positions. But let's not kid ourselves. The allure of cash is hard to resist. In Washington state, a critical initiative aimed at addressing the often overlooked challenges faced by boys and men was abruptly squashed within the Washington state legislature earlier this month. I'm Blair Daly. Yeah, and I'm Joe Cook. So we carry out advocacy for improving the well-being of Washington's boys, male youth, and men. And that includes advocating for the creation of the nation's first state-level commission focused on improving the lives of males. Social movements and advocacy movements have a history of leaving out certain voices. That's one of the reasons why I'm so involved here with Blair at these early stages, to make sure all men are represented and their voices are heard on these type of issues. Some people say to us, a government commission focused on boys and men's problems, that'll never happen. Others look at the statistics and wonder why hasn't that happened yet. At the center of this surprising development are State Senator Sam Hunt of Olympia and Representative Bill Ramos of Issaquah, both Democrats, who made the decision not to move forward with House Bill 1270 and Senate Bill 5830. Despite receiving bipartisan support, these bills, which sought to establish a Washington State Commission on Boys and Men, were not slated for hearings, sparking significant concern and debate. Alarming statistics paint a grim picture of the state of boys and men in Washington state. 
Between 2018 and 2022, the state saw over 16,000 males lose their lives to suicides, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related deaths. The crisis extends further, with males twice as likely to be homeless, more likely to abandon their education, and making up 60% of drug overdose deaths. Boys and men are overwhelmingly represented in the state's prisons, account for 90% of workplace fatalities, three-quarters of homicide victims, 75% of completed suicides, and nearly half of the missing and murdered indigenous people in Washington state. The proposed commission was poised to delve into five key areas, education, family and relationships, employment and financial health, physical and mental health, and male experiences within the judicial system. The educational gender divide is particularly alarming as data from the Global Initiative for Boys and Men using figures from the State Department of Education reveals that boys of all racial backgrounds significantly trail their female counterparts in English language arts across all grade levels. The decision by Hunt and Ramos to deny these bills a hearing is particularly striking in light of existing commissions for other specific demographic groups within the state, such as women and LGBTQ populations. This move has ignited a flurry of calls for clarity from a diverse group of bipartisan supporters who have tirelessly worked to bring these issues to the legislative forefront over the past three years. The issue was raised during a virtual town hall on January 30th with Senator Hunt and Representatives Jessica Bateman and Beth Doglio, where Doglio described the commission as, quote, a interesting concept with interesting statistics, end quote. However, despite her acknowledgement of the need to support all community members, her colleagues' lack of response seemed to downplay the severity of the challenges faced by boys and men in Washington state. This legislative standoff occurs against the backdrop of a growing political gender gap. In the U.S., the gap has become increasingly pronounced, with a Pew Research Center analysis revealing a notable divergence in party affiliation by gender since 2008. For instance, in the 2020 presidential election, 56% of women leaned towards or identified with the Democratic Party, compared to only 42% of men, a 14-point gap Globally, this trend is also mirrored in various countries. In South Korea, for instance, there is a striking 50% difference in political leanings between young men and women, with women leaning more towards liberal parties and men towards conservative ones. Similar patterns are observed in the UK and Germany, indicating a global phenomenon where gender increasingly plays a pivotal role in political affiliation. Historically, initiatives serving boys and men have been framed as anathema to feminist progress, with some second-wave feminists persistently asserting that boys and men, as inherently violent members of a privileged class, are not deserving of abuse survivor services or legislation specifically addressing their needs. In recent years, men's rights activists, or MRAs, have even been identified as domestic terror threats by the Department of Homeland Security, and last month were identified by the Anti-Defamation League as, quote, a broad set of male supremacist, anti-feminist, misogynist, and sometimes violent movements, end quote. Increasingly, prominent men's rights activists, such as the late Mark Angelucci, who was assassinated in 2020, find themselves targeted by intelligence agencies and smeared by academia, civil society, and corporate media alike. 
further obscuring the urgent needs of boys and men from the eyes of ideologically inclined legislators. As the dust settles on this legislative impasse in Washington state, the determination of advocates like Blair Daly shines through the gloom. In the face of this setback, their resolve serves as a poignant reminder of the work that remains, breaking through the glass ceiling to bravely confront the suffering of boys and men. Rebel Alliance News. Tell me I should follow my heart But self-expression always feels like another shot in the dark Always living life like I got something to prove Never feel like I fit in, always on the move of a father I need the words of a friend Cause your love is the end of my insecurity A recent Lifetime documentary highlighting Wendy Williams's decline has reignited discussions about the need for guardianship reform in New York State, echoing concerns that have been prevalent in the legal community for years. These concerns are not isolated to New York. Across the country, the conservatorship system, particularly in California, has come under scrutiny. High-profile cases like Britney Spears have shed light on potential abuses within these systems, which are intended to protect individuals who are unable to manage their own affairs due to health issues. Williams's entanglement with guardianship began when her health came into question in November 2021, leading to a series of legal and financial challenges. The situation escalated when Williams, suspecting misconduct by her financial advisor at Wells Fargo, requested her bank statements. In response, Wells Fargo froze her accounts in January 2022, citing concerns of potential financial fraud. This action was particularly contentious because it was based on a medical diagnosis from a doctor whom Williams had already dismissed, raising serious concerns about the bank's use of questionable medical opinions to control her finances. The complexity of Williams's case deepened when she decided to fire her financial advisor at Wells Fargo, signaling a loss of trust. Despite her clear intention to manage her own affairs, evidenced by her designation of her son as her power of attorney, Wells Fargo pursued a temporary financial guardianship. This move by the bank highlights the potential for financial institutions to exploit guardianship laws, using them as tools to gain undue influence over an individual's assets. The scrutiny of guardianship and conservatorship systems gained momentum with the widely publicized conservatorship battle of Britney Spears in California. 
Spears' case, which drew attention from legal scholars and anti-human trafficking activists alike, galvanized public and legal attention to the issue of conservatorship abuse, birthing the Free Britney movement. I will be honest with you, I haven't been back to court in a long time because I don't think I was heard on any level when I came to court the last time. The people who did that to me should not be able to walk away so easily. I'll recap. I work seven days a week, no days off, which in California, the only similar thing to this is called sex trafficking, making anyone work, work against their will, taking all their possessions away, credit card, cash, phone, passport card, and placing them in a home where they they work with the people who live with them. They all, they all lived in the house with me, the nurses, the 24-7 security. They watched me changed every day naked, morning, noon, and night. Um, my body, I had no privacy door for my, um, for my room. I gave eight gals of blood a week. If I didn't do any of my meetings and work from ten, um, eight to six at night, which is 10 hours a day, seven days a week, no days off, I wouldn't be on my schedule. They always told me I had to do this. And ma'am, I will tell you, sitting in a chair 10 hours a day, seven days a week, it ain't fun. And especially when you can't walk out the front door. And that's why I'm telling you this again two years later. After I've lied and told the whole world I'm okay and I'm happy, it's a lie. I thought I just maybe I said that enough. Maybe I might become happy because I've been in denial. I've been in shock. I am traumatized. I cry every day. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I don't think how the state of California can have all this written in the court documents from the time I showed up and do absolutely nothing. Just hire with my money another person to keep and keep my dad on board. Ma'am, my dad and anyone involved in this conservatorship and my management who played a huge role in punishing at me when I said, no, ma'am, they should be in jail. The activism and media coverage surrounding Spears' case spotlighted the potential abuses within the conservatorship framework, prompting a reevaluation of these legal arrangements. In California, the term conservatorship is used in place of guardianship, which is the term used in New York. The conservatorship system in California has been known to be susceptible to misuse, a fact highlighted by the case of radio icon Casey Kasem, Kasem's conservatorship battle involved a highly publicized family dispute over his care and estate, underscoring how conservatorships can become battlegrounds for control, often at the expense of the conservatives' wishes and well-being. In response to growing concerns about the conservatorship system, California introduced Assembly Bill 1663, aimed at reforming the way conservatorships are handled. This legislation prioritizes the preferences of the conservatee in choosing a conservator and mandates the exploration of less restrictive alternatives. It also requires regular reviews of conservatorship cases to ensure they are still warranted and introduces supported decision-making as an alternative, offering a more autonomy-preserving option for those under conservatorship. However, the issue of conservatorship abuse extends beyond the realm of celebrities to impact some of California's most vulnerable groups, particularly the unhoused population. In effect, since December 1st of last year, California has implemented the Community Assistance, Recovery, and Empowerment, or CARE Court program, which seeks to address mental health issues among the homeless population by facilitating court-ordered care, while the CARE Court program is designed with good intentions, aiming to provide necessary support and treatment for those with severe mental health conditions, it has sparked a debate over civil liberties. Critics argue that the program could lead to forced treatment and involuntary detainment, violating the civil rights of individuals who may be capable of making their own decisions about their care. 
This concern reflects broader apprehensions about the potential for guardianship and conservatorship arrangements to infringe on personal freedoms, and critics question its ability to have meaningful, wide-reaching impact in addressing California's homelessness crisis. The controversies surrounding guardianship and conservatorship systems exemplified by the cases of celebrities like Wendy Williams, Britney Spears, and Casey Kasem highlight the delicate balance between providing necessary care and respecting individual autonomy. As reform efforts like Assembly Bill 1663 go into effect and the care court program is adopted by jurisdictions across California, the focus must remain on ensuring they serve the best interests of those they are intended to protect without becoming tools for exploitation or control. Rebel Alliance News. 아무 저스도 먼지 안 척합니다. You can't crack down on a person like a state. And yet I feel the inner need to captivate. Put you in a prison made entirely from desire. Punish you with water. Punish you with fire. You're never gonna leave me, are you? If I push things much too far, you would forgive me. I hope you would. And you know you've always got your freedom. You can't lose it. Hope you never feel the need to take it out and use it. 집으로 돌아가. 매월 제 물지오야. 사자굴로 데려오가세요. That was Momus perform performing Captivate, available now on Spotify and Apple Music. And you're listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. As you know, KPFK Pacifica Radio is a pure community effort, something that we all do together to benefit every community member since, 19, since 65 years. Everyone does their part. We all work all day for free to bring you the uncensored news that you're not going to find anywhere else on the dial. So please, do your part now and go online to kpfk.org and donate to our news program, Rebel Alliance News. We have to earn our keep here too. So let us know that you're listening and that you like what you hear. Please donate now. Everything helps. Go online to kpfk.org and become a member of our Sustainer Circle by donating $25, $50, or $100 or more. And gladly, we will take it. So please, join our KPFK family. Go to the phone right now and call 818-985-5735 and donate. Thank you. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Advocates and loved ones of Mumia Abu Jamal, a political prisoner, are urgently raising concerns about his worsening health. 
Mumia, a former Pennsylvania radio journalist, was convicted of killing Daniel Faulkner, a Philadelphia police officer, and has been on death row ever since. He has written various books while in prison and has since attracted worldwide attention. Mumia, set to celebrate his 70th birthday on April 24th, has been held for over four decades, with a significant portion spent in solitary confinement on death row in Pennsylvania. His relocation from death row to the general inmate population at SCI Mahanoy occurred in late 2011, where he now serves a life term without parole, essentially a sentence of death through imprisonment. In a pivotal moment in late December 2018, following a 2016 appeal by lawyers Judith Ritter and Sam Spital, Common Pleas Judge Leon Tucker granted Mumia the opportunity to challenge his 1982 murder charge, propelled by new evidence found in early 2019 in six evidence boxes previously undisclosed. Abu Jamal's death sentence was overturned in March 2020 by a federal court in Philadelphia. But the Supreme Court judges voted 2 to 1 to uphold his conviction. Nevertheless, in March 2023, Mumia's fight for freedom faced a hurdle when Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas, Judge Lucretia Clemens, signaled her intention to dismiss his appeal based on this new evidence, prompting ongoing appeals against Clemens's decision. Supporters highlighting evidence of misconduct by the police, prosecution, and judiciary are calling on Krasner to leverage his position to release Mumia. Since 2016, Mumia has suffered from bleeding wounds and a skin condition resembling hardened leather, likely linked to untreated hepatitis C. A legal victory in January 2017 against the Department of Corrections led U.S. District Court Judge Robert D. Mariana to rule that denying hepatitis C treatment for Mumia would constitute cruel and unusual punishment, though the treatment delay has caused further health complications. He underwent heart surgery on April 19, 2021, and was prescribed a heart-healthy diet and regular exercise, which the prison has failed to provide for nearly three years. Here's Mumia speaking from prison. The politics of performance. What can be more frustrating than observing what politicians do or say? Like soap operas, we often see them giving a performance, in essence acting and saying things that they really don't believe. This is especially so in this era of social media and when cable channels provide access to special, isolated audiences. It may be true that we see and hear them, but in truth, they are strangers to us. They are often motivated by money, donated by those special audience energy, but more often by fear seen with remarkable clarity by the case of former U.S. President Donald Trump and his menacing minions. Trump may not effectively get people elected, but he can drive someone out from a primary election. For fear of him, politicians bow and scrape and beg. Like peasants before their lords, they serve their political master as if their political lives depended on his favor. They offer a false yet false-sounding praise of him while snickering behind his back. Rarely has performance been so servile. And as their affections are false, 
so too are their hatreds, which are but more performances played with bare teeth. Yet, as Alexis de Tocqueville noted over almost 200 years ago, when it comes to political parties, their antipathy is all too real. De Tocqueville, who visited America in the 1830s, wrote as follows. The parties by which the Union is menaced do not rest upon abstract principles, but upon temporal interests. These interests disseminated in the provinces of so vast an empire may be said to constitute rival nations rather than parties. Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America, with love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. Concerns over Mumia's declining health have prompted friends and family to put out a call to action that began on February 15th. Please call Mahanoy Superintendent Bernadette Mason at 570-773-2158, Philadelphia Department of Correction Secretary Dr. Laurel R. Harry at 717-728-4109, and Deputy Secretary Central Region Robert Gimbel at 717-728-4122, extension 4123, on weekdays from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. Beneath the surface of India's digital ID system lies the promise of a world where every transaction, every harvest, and every individual move is meticulously monitored under the guise of progress and efficiency. As such, technocratic enthusiasts like Bill Gates have long heralded the system as a revolutionary innovation that is changing the world. Nandan Nilakani, a co-founder of India's Infosys, was employee number one at the government's universal ID project, Aadhaar. This came about for two reasons. One was inclusion, so that millions of people without an ID could be in the formal system. And second, to make government spending more efficient and more accurate. The United Nations has recognized the importance of such efforts in the post-2015 development agenda as a sustainable development goal to provide legal identity for all, including birth registration, by 2030. If Aadhaar can be made to work in India, it can serve as an example for other nations. The World Bank has a very ambitious goal to end extreme poverty by 2030. We believe that having a foundational ID as a public good is a critical part of it. India's Aadhaar project leads the world. Its ambition is as large as the nation and its lessons, what went right and what could go better, are instructive as other countries try to move forward to capture digital dividends. This week, Bill Gates announced that he is visiting India and made sure to note that the Gates Foundation is involved in what he calls efforts that are saving millions of lives. 
Gates, as well as EU and UN officials, refers to such systems as Digital Public Infrastructure, or DPI, a buzzword for introduction of digital ID and payments by 2030. The International Monetary Fund, or IMF, has also praised India's digital ID system. The IMF supports digital IDs as they are key in the development of central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. Gates expressed his admiration for the country's massive biometric identity DPI component, ADAR, and the fact that over 12 billion transactions are processed by it. The Microsoft founder has another passion, agriculture. He made sure to note that he would be visiting a monitoring center where agriculture meets ADHAR. The government uses the center in Odisha that has a registry of 7.5 million farmers to give them real-time guidance. Officials can keep track of who is growing what for the sake of providing those farmers with advice, Gates said. It has almost become a rule that projects like DPI effectively get tested in developing countries, orchestrated by globalist financial institutions like the World Bank. Gates mentions that the developments around the implementation of DPI in Odisha are monitored by the World Bank as well as Ethiopia and Sri Lanka, ostensibly in order for the example to be replicated there. Last fall, the United National Development Program unveiled a campaign called 50 in 5 that aims to help 50 countries design, launch, and scale components of their digital public infrastructure. This effort is one of those where the Gates Foundation shows up as a partner, while the program is supposed to promote safe, inclusive, and interoperable DPI introduction in those countries. When the campaign was announced, India was mentioned as a success story, while Africa was singled out as a particular target for greater development of DPI. It sounds like a surveillance state dream, at least as far as the right infrastructure is concerned. This ominous vision of the future is being methodically advanced across the globe, with India serving as a model a model that some fear may lead us into an era where every aspect of human life is under the unblinking eye of a digital panopticon. Last Monday, financier and member of the Rothschild banking family, Lord Jacob Rothschild, died at 87. This is Dan Dix here reporting for Press for Truth with breaking news. Jacob Rothschild, the international financier and globalist bankster, has died at the age of 87. This man right here and his family are the ones who are responsible for this current debt-based system that we are all living in. They are the ones who came up with this whole idea of fractional reserve lending. The idea of creating money out of thin air, lending it out to people, and then charging interest on these loans that were created by money that was generated 
created out of nothing. This is largely the reason why if you find yourself today struggling to buy a home, struggling to afford to even buy food in comparison to what it was like for your grandparents, well, this man and his family are largely to thank for that. Here he is seen with Mariana Abramovic posing with Jacob Rothschild in front of this painting that just so happens to be called Satan Summoning His Legions. Cause of death was not given in a statement from the family. Our father Jacob was a towering presence in many people's lives, a superbly accomplished financier, a devoted public servant, a passionate supporter of charitable causes in Israel and Jewish culture, a keen environmentalist and much-loved friend, father and grandfather. He will be buried in accordance with Jewish custom in a small family ceremony to celebrate his life, the family said in the statement. Lord Rothschild began his career at the family-owned N.M. Rothschild & Sons Bank in 1963. In 1980, he departed from the family bank to focus on Rothschild Investment Trust. This subsidiary, currently recognized as RIT Capital Partners PLC, ranks among the most prominent investment trusts in the UK. Since debuting on the London Stock Exchange in 1988, RIT has soared as much as 1300%. In 2019, Rothschild stepped down as Ritz chairman. His daughter, Hannah, 61, remained on the board of directors of the investment firm. Let's revisit some of Rothschild's previous warnings. In 2015, he said, The geopolitical situation is most dangerous since World War II. One year later, he again warned about the outcome of what is surely the greatest experiment in monetary policy in the history of the world. And then again in August 2017, he cautioned that share prices have in many cases risen to unprecedented levels at a time when economic growth is by no means assured. And in 2018, he said, quote, the new world order is at risk. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. We apologize for the technical difficulties. Last week, the highest court in the UK held a hearing on the appeal by Julian Assange to block the effort by the Biden administration to drag him to the US for a trial on charges of hacking and espionage. What is at stake and what could be learned by going to London for the court session? Don DeBar has more. the U.S. case is. They have to rely on lies. That was Stella Assange, the wife of Julian Assange, the imprisoned journalist whose appeal against being extradited to the United States Hello there. Once again, we would like to apologize for the technical difficulty. We spoke with him via Zoom on Wednesday. First of all, Russell, thanks for joining us. Um, to me, what's most interesting about it 
Because uh, I know when you actually go and get involved in these things in person, you learn things that you didn't know. Well, what did you come back with that you didn't go over to England with about uh, Julian Assange? Obviously, I got to uh, coordinate and interact with uh, the people who are supporting the effort to get him free. Um, and you can tell a lot about a person by the people around them. And from Stella on to everybody else, everyone was so uh, warm and just basically kind, decent people, um, really uh, moral, um, principled group of people. Uh, and, and that extended to the broader crowd. Um, I think you look at a lot of causes that are um, more what I would call a virtue signaling kind of causes that you get a lot of approval for. That attracts a very different kind of person. That's the kind of person I usually don't respond to well. So you go to something like this, this protest to free one of the most important, if not the most important journalists of our time. And it's something that the entire establishment is against you. It's something they're never going to put on the side of a Starbucks cup. It's something Amazon is never going to tweet out about approvingly. And the kind of people who show up to that, that's the real deal. That's the real left. That That's, that's the actual left. Now, unfortunately, in that regard, it's not nearly as large as it should have been. Um, I don't want to give the impression it, it was it was small, but this is arguably, uh, well, it's definitely the most important freedom of the press case since Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, um, and you could argue maybe the most important freedom of press case of the last hundred years. Um, everyone in the world who could get there should have been there. Like, to me, that should have been hundreds of thousands of people. This isn't hyperbole either. Uh, the condition that exists now is one where every human being on the planet, almost, certainly 90% of the human beings on the planet, are engaged deeply with media. And so mm -hmm. the question mm -hmm. is then, since, since someone is speaking to everyone almost all of the time, Mm -hmm. exactly has control of that microphone mm -hmm. under that condition it matters a lot more if there's some public access to the microphone than if there's maybe a dozen people that know how to read in your town or reading each other's newspapers so in terms of its importance to us it's actually it's it's deeply important now well this is uh really where i think the Julian Assange case is a flashpoint in what is ultimately the battle of our times. The battle of our moment is the fight between an increasingly out of touch and disconnected global elite class and the popular will of a population that they clearly believe from their statements and their actions should shut up and let their betters decide what's good for them. And the loss of control over the conversation that the internet has engendered um, really is, is a big part of what you're seeing with elites trying to 
slowly it's it's very much the frog in the pot of boiling water it used to be a given among even liberals and i don't use that term with affection but even among liberals the basic idea that freedom of speech was sacrosanct was just a given right these are the people who lined up around the corner to see good night and good luck when uh when it came out right uh, very aware of mccarthyism and these speech rights and gradually they've been persuaded to become the new mccarthyites they've been persuaded to that well the internet changes things and maybe freedom of speech isn't so great and you're seeing the liberal class being drawn into making a case against free speech by their by the elites that they tend to slavishly follow and the reason this has become so such a flashpoint for elites is through outlets like the times through the the barrier to entry of media and the means of production and and the capital you needed to have any kind of a large platform they were able to gatekeep now that was somewhat moderated by what Matt Taibbi describes so well in his book Hate Inc the where this standard of objectivity objective journalism now we remember it as an as an idealistic principle and for a lot of those reporters it certainly was but it wasn't for the owners of the media it was a business strategy so that you could have the widest possible audience you're not alienating anybody um but uh now um they can no longer gatekeep um the information now back then because they had this objective standard the news was relatively good compared to what it is now fox news and the whole murdoch empire they proved that there was actually more money to be made feeding red meat to a fanatically devoted ideological base than there was in trying to please both sides and that destroyed the entire premise of news that just that just what you get today i always compare it to it it is what great drink is to grape juice that that's what the news media is today to what it once was but they always served a gatekeeping function right. as noam chomsky demonstrated in manufacturing consent that's not post that collapse of media that's when it was at its best that's and he demonstrated the way war and foreign policy were reported there was always a lot of state department regurgitation of of their talking points now i mean look what's happening with gaza they they immediately lost control of the narrative they're yeah. not able to limit um what people see uh, people you have videos being shared i i i've mentioned this on our show on due dissidence um, when Fahrenheit 911 came out, I, I, you know, people lined up to see that it was the Bush election, the re-election campaign. It was a very charged moment, and everybody showed up to see that movie. And when they showed the footage of maimed Iraqis, it was shocking because you hadn't seen it. We didn't have, we had the internet, but not not in any any form of what it is today. And uh, nobody had seen it. The media didn't show that to you. Now, immediately with Gaza, the images of the Palestinian civilians, they couldn't control it. And that's what a lot of this yeah. is about. And Julian Assange is kind of the nexus point yeah. of that argument, because if someone like Assange 
if journalists like Assange can release their secrets that way, and they have a means of distribution that the elites do not control, that is extremely dangerous to their authority and power. Mm-hmm. So all of these strains, all of these threads are coming together in the Assange case. And that's what's so important about it, because if Assange goes down, we're all in trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're all we're all uh, muzzled, basically. Yes, yes. They, they can come for any of us. Russell, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. For KPFK, I'm Don DeMar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. The humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip continues to be catastrophic. Although several countries have airdropped food, the situation does not seem to be improving as Israel continues to bomb civilians. Telesaurus Noor Harazin has the latest. Uh, the humanitarian situation here in Gaza, they said that 576 families or people in Gaza are one step away from a famine. This means that one out of four families are starving. This means that around a quarter of the population of Gaza are having uh, hard access to water and food. And this comes actually uh, at the time where there is less aid that is being allowed to the Gaza Strip. I mean, we're talking around 50% or even less uh, percentage of the number of humanitarian aid trucks that used to be allowed in the Gaza Strip back in November and uh, December. This comes in a time where several countries like Jordan, Egypt, France actually performed an aerial food drop on the west coast of Gaza. Yes, some of this uh, airdrop was um, landed in the sea. However, Palestinian fishermen managed to pick up that uh, food aid and bring it back to the shores of Gaza and distribute it on the Palestinian uh, civilians taking shelter on the uh, west coast of the uh, coastal enclave. Talking about the latest number and according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, 96 Palestinians were killed in Gaza over the past 24 hours. And this brings up the death toll here in Gaza since the 7th of October up to 29,892 Palestinians. Palestinians have demonstrated in several areas of the West Bank following a call by the Palestinian factions to declare Tuesday a day of rage. They protested against the Israeli aggression against the besieged Gaza Strip and the occupied West Bank and in support of the Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli jails. Press TV's Mona Kandil reports from occupied Ramallah. Palestinians have taken to the streets across the occupied West Bank to protest against the Israeli genocide on the Gaza Strip as it nears 150 days. Despite the bad weather and heavy rain, protesters roamed the streets of Ramallah chanting for Gaza and demanding an end to Israel's war on the besieged strip. People here say that Israel is using the war on Gaza to escalate its military measures in the West Bank. Despite the Israeli non-stop crimes against our people and attempts to break their will, the Palestinians there in Gaza are steadfast and the resistance is still fighting. Wherever the Palestinians are, they are facing the Israeli illegal plans and violence and the killing that is everywhere, settlement expansion, Judaization attempts, and now the Israeli plans of eviction and attempts to break the resistance in Gaza that all Palestinians are embracing. 
Also, amongst the demands of the Palestinian protesters is to shed the light to the suffering of the thousands of prisoners incarcerated in Israeli jails under inhumane condition. In addition to the fact that the Israeli regime is using the illegal administrative bars with a disastrous situation in Israeli jails. 7,300 were detained from the West Bank and over 2,000 from the Gaza Strip since the 7th of October. And we should not forget that over 4,000 have already been imprisoned before. So we're talking today about over 11,500 prisoners who are being tortured, humiliated and maltreated. Hundreds are in serious health condition and they are facing a slow death. With all eyes are focused on the Gaza Strip, Israeli regime continues stepping up its violence here in the occupied West Bank. The Israeli forces shot dead four Palestinians in separate incidents in Al Farah refugee camp and Tobas town northeast Nablus and at Mazmuria checkpoint near Bethlehem, bringing the number of Palestinians killed in the West Bank since the start of the war on Gaza to 411. Protesters today are stressing that no one is getting used to the Israeli genocide in the besieged Gaza Strip at the time when the regime's atrocities against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank are on the rise. They say this is the least they can do to express their anger, to express their support to their fellow Palestinians in Gaza and to show them that they are not alone. In Africa, poverty is being exacerbated by a series of rampant militant attacks across the continent, according to an alarming new report. Terrorism rates have skyrocketed in the wake of decades of the so-called U.S.-led war on terror. Most recently, at least nine people were killed in Burundi, following a series of attacks in Burkina Faso. RT's Nolovuyu Kunge has this report. The recent attacks carried out by the Red Tabara terrorist group in Burundi has once again sowed terror among civilian population that side. This time it was a household in full mourning in the locality of Buringa, which was the target of these merciless violences. Um, the toll is quite heavy, with nine dead, including six women and a soldier who came to help. According to the Burundian authorities, Rwanda trains and arms this group, um, posing a constant threat to the security and peace in that region. Here's an eyewitness describing what exactly happened. They asked where the men were, and my aunt told them that the men weren't at home yet, and that we were in mourning. They replied, ah, I want to shoot you. And then they shot people who were hiding in the shower, everyone who was in the living room, and then came here where the food was and did the same. A shooting for which there was no uh, immediate claim of responsibility took place in a region where armed groups have carried out uh, several attacks um, in the eastern part of Burkina Faso. Just yesterday, the African continent has sort of become a central hotbed for terrorism or rather violent um, extremism with a significant increase in uh, terrorist attacks on the continent in recent years. Um, I mean, the peak of all of this is expressed in in the violent struggle between many um, radical Islamic terrorist organizations such as the ISIS and Al-Qaeda and many countries on the continent and even um, between those organizations themselves. And at the moment, we understand that um, the Sahel region of sub-Saharan Africa is responsible for more um, deaths from terrorism in 2022 and 2023 um, than both South Asia, the Middle East and North Africa combined. In fact, a report that we recently 
saw found that fatalities due to terrorist um, violence increased by 48%. Very important to note as well that um, the number of attacks in Africa has risen to 100,000% since the U.S. launched its war on terror. And uh, by now, it's not a secret that America's war on terror has seen its share of uh, stalemates, of disasters and defeats. And uh, during decades of armed interventions, the United States has watched its um, 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 efforts implode in spectacular fashion um, from Iraq to Afghanistan. But then the greatest failure of uh, the American wars may not be in the Middle East, but in Africa. The numbers alone speak to the depths of the disasters. Here's more on that. And you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Again, please make a donation to our news program. Call 818 818- 985-5735 or go online to kpfk.org and donate to Rebel Alliance News. Rebel Alliance News would like to thank our engineer Wendell Handy and all the tireless contributors like Don DeBar, Polina Vasiliev, and our producer Ziri Rudeau. Visit us on the web at rebelalliancenews.com. KPFK General Manager Michael Novick will be doing a special report to the listeners tomorrow, Thursday at 3 p.m. Coming up next is Feminist Magazine. Thank you so much for listening.